This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fur Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fur Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Today, I'm going to give you another case study. It's been a minute since I've done one of these, but I've got one to uh, to cover. And I'm reminded of, an, of a quote by Bill Gates, something along the lines of, give a lazy person a hard job because they'll find an easy way to do it. I'm not sure that's exactly spot on, but part of my goal, if you will, as a mobile home park owner operator is to be lazy. And I'm actually far from lazy. In fact, I work too much as I stay up too late doing these podcasts among other things. But the point is I've never used lot count or assets under management or some of those vanity metrics. Not that those metrics don't have any real value. I'd like to own more lots, right? I'd like to have more assets under management. But I kind of started thinking, you know, let me pick prod, do less parks, but a little heavier lift and let me make twice as much money with half as many parks. And in theory, I'll work half as much as the other guy and I'll make the same amount of money. I'll own less pads and less parks and have less assets or management. But maybe I can work 30 hours a week instead of 60. Now, right now I'm not there. I'm not working 30, but you know, not even close. Um, so that's it's not really working as well as I hoped on that front. But my point is I have structured on many of my syndications, not my first one, which I've covered here. And I learned the hard way and I left uh, seven figures on the table. Still did quite well, but didn't do as well as I could have or should have. So what I've learned is take a bigger split. And by virtue of doing that, there are less deals that are going to fit my investment metrics. And there are less deals that I can fundraise for and raise capital for. And that's okay with it. I still want to give my investors a good return. I want to give them a risk-adjusted return. And for a deal that's, you know, quote, right down the fairway with limited risk, I don't think the investors should make a 30 or 40 or 45 or 50% IRR when there's limited risk. Now, nobody's going to give me their money to make a 5 or 10% IRR. So I will, and not that IRR is the only metric, but it's one, we've covered that in other episodes. But that's one that a lot of investors draw their attention to. Others, of course, are the PREF, some to the cash on cash, some to the equity multiple. And I feel like most of them are IRR, frankly. And then just you know, really just a kind of a smell test is what's the probability or possibility that this guy is going to actually pull off this business plan and implement this pro forma or the spreadsheet? Because as I've said before, in the history of Microsoft Excel, no one has created a business plan that ends in bankruptcy. But in, but in real life, there are many business plans that don't work properly and they end in bankruptcy. So Microsoft Excel is rose-colored glasses. It's very easy to manipulate the numbers and there's more fiction written in Excel than in Word. Anyway, this deal I'm going to talk to you about is deal in the St. Louis market. I can tell you, it's, it's, I already sold it, so I don't really care anymore. It's my park I bought in St. Charles, Missouri. I bought it in February of 21 for 
2,725,000, which based on in-place income, 64 to 67 pads, really 68 pads, but one of them wasn't that usable because the city came in and took some eminent domain and took the prop, took some of the property lines. So really it was 67 usable pads. So it, was, it was a stable park, very well operated. The guy that operated it, uh, he built it, like built it, built it. He was a civil engineer. He did a great job. He had a shop, he had an office there. He, he, he piddled in the shop. I didn't really think that I could improve operation that much, that much other than, other than the fact that he had three vacant lots. St. Charles is a very affluent suburb. This isn't a commercial district. We're within like a mile of a Lowe's of a quick trip. And this is like, there's retail corridor here. There were McMansions immediately north of the property. So this is a great, there's a nice city water park across the street. This is a great area. This is a competitive park to try to get bought. Uh, my dad and I and our acquisitions guy, Andy, went to the park, personally spent a lot of time with this guy. It was one of the slowest site visits ever. He stopped and it was 67 pass. It shouldn't take that long. And, and, there's, and there's, there were no parkland homes. The inspections were easy. City water, city sewer, city trash, all direct build. The expense ratio was low. When we sold this park, the honest to God expense ratio was 22%. Broker didn't want to believe me, buyer didn't want to believe me, but it really was 22%. And part of that is because you know, that's the magic of direct build city water, city sewer. And we didn't have rentals and top line revenue was high because it's a good affluent market. We had minimal management. We had an in, in park greeter that made, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. We paid at one time it was a guy named Joe. It was a gal named Angie we paid him commissions for the few homes we brought in. We ended up converting the office which was a, basically a masonry, but converted it. We rented it to a maintenance man who had a construction company and he used it as a, his shop. And we just got a lot right out of it. We just, you know, I think charge him $400 a month. But there was a little bit of meat on the bone and that there were three vacant pads and that rents were below market. And we bought it off market. So we bought it about a seven and a quarter cap. And for a market like this, it should have been much lower um, you know, I don't know that I would have paid a five cap, but somebody might have. I, you know, was it worth six and a half? Yeah, I mean, I have a, I had an, I got a, I chose to get a local bank recourse loan. Yeah, it was eighty percent of purchase price. So it was pretty attractive on the LTV, and I was able to get a three point two four percent, which is like the lowest in bank history. But I got to match a Fannie Mae loan. I didn't want to do Fannie Mae because I don't want to be locked in for ten years at. My low purchase price, you know, because it's 80% of the low number. I wanted to, my business plan was to own this park for a long time and to, you know, fill it up, get the rents a little closer to market and then refinance. Well, the capital markets kind of changed. So it made my refinance less likely. And I still could have refinanced before, in theory, before the rates went through the roof. The problem was I went to several banks, including uh, Fannie Mae, but also some kind of regional banks and national mobile home parks, specific banks. I'm not going to name the actual lenders because because I didn't care for their terms, in part because they wouldn't let me take cash out. They're like, oh, we'll do a refinance. We'll give you 30-year rate. I'm like, yeah, but there's no cash out. Like, well, you haven't really done much. I'm like, so I did three previous, this previous year, I did three refinances of Fannie Mae on deals that there was a nice story. You know, I transformed the community. I brought in 50 homes or um, demoed a bunch of homes. We just fixed everything up. 
this park, honestly, it was already operating at an A level. So I just couldn't improve it much. So I'm like, you guys are penalizing me because I bought it right. I mean, I just bought it at the right price. Dad, Andy, and I spent a lot of time with the seller on site. That site visit took like four hours to just, he would, he got in his car, he had a brand new, nice looking truck he wanted to show off. And we got in his truck and we sat there with him. And he pulled in front of unit number one and he told us their life story, which he knew. Then he pulled in front of unit two and he repeated it. And he did that for all 64 occupied pads. And I got a little heat because it took forever. So then I was late. And I, I take vacation about a couple of days a year. And I was going on a free day vacation with my family in Branson, meeting my pa- my in-laws and my wife and kids there. And I was late because this thing took much longer than expected. But I eventually got out of Dodge with my wife and she's cool. We're still happily married. Um, and we have a lot of money that we didn't think we would have because of this property. Because we got it close. So building rapport to seller, that's one of the lessons. The other lesson here is you don't need a 300 pad park to get rich. You don't need a heavy lift to get rich. And rich is a you know subjective term. But on this deal, we sold it in December 22. We owned it for less than 12, less than two years. And we bought it and we sold it December 22. Go look at the market rates at that time. Go look at the cap rates at that time. Not a good time to sell. We closed on this deal at $5,250,000. That is just around $2.5 million increase in 21 months. And we filled three pads. How do we do it? We bought it right. And rents were three eighty five dollars on average. They're a little different per lot. The new half was in the back. It was 10 bucks extra. Corner lots were 10 bucks extra. Um, double wise for five bucks extra. This was this guy's system. He increased rent every April. I think it was April. Every April, five bucks. Five bucks. Okay. So he was a little below market rent. We upped 30 bucks, which seemed like a lot. But what do we do? We, we fixed potholes. We put in speed bumps. We painted about 15 houses for free for the houses that looked like heck rusty. We painted the fence out front that looked like crap. And we had a, a common area parking that one guy was using all his equipment and trucks there. We sold. We rented that guy the shop and put his equipment inside. We got revenue out of that and it vacated that counter parking. We put a playground there, a small playground, but we put a playground there. Other things we did successfully, we timed and estimated the tax valuation and tax appeal properly. Each state's different. Missouri happens to be, have a tax reassessment cycle of January one, almost everywhere is January one is tax day or lien day, but January one of every odd numbered year. That means January 1 of 21, January 1 of 23. So we timed it that we closed in February of 21. So January 1, our sale was on the books, and the assessor has to stop his or her books in advance of sending out the notices, which in Missouri typically happens in March, April. And as such, we were able to strategically close on the property on a property that has, you know, a tax valuation at half the purchase price. As a result, they didn't see our sale and we didn't get a doubling of our taxes. Um, so that was really helpful. You know, converting the office helped, being an affluent market helped. And then we filled the three lots. This park, the downside of this park, there was some floodplain. 
and there's major topo challenges. This was this is up and down park and major slope issues, which made it tough to infill the last three lots. We looked at, I think, 500 houses to fill unit number 22, which was only 40. We only had 40 linear feet in length, and you can't really get a 40-foot single wide. And it's hard to find a 40-foot double wide. And the park model homes were crazy expensive, and the you know, tiny homes the city didn't like. We put an RV in there. The city didn't like that. We had to, put the, we had to pull the RV out. You know, we did not supposed to have RVs, apparently. On the zoning letter, Pete, so we, anyway, we found a home that was a uh, used double wide that was like a 24 by 40. We barely fit in there. It was tough to put a double wide. It was on a corner lot with like 12 feet of grade change. We had to move some earth and, you know, put a lot of concrete in, make a bigger deck and with bigger sports. So it was a little bit of pain. We got that lot filled. We got three lots filled. And a couple bad apples we had to take over their homes for the eviction process, abandoned housing process and get those homes refilled. Um, part of the challenge park was this really old homes. This is part of the reason I sold it, was the homes were old. And this park um, predated the city. So it predated the city code, and then it predated the city code as it pertained to manufactured housing. This thing was old. So the homes, the lots were very small, very dense. So I thought, in my mind, at one point I was like, I'm going to own this thing forever. But I'm like, realistically, I'm going to have one to three homes a year just die of old age and they're very challenging to replace because of the hills because the density some of these homes you could jump from one rooftop to the next i mean they're not 15 feet apart which is a city code they're not 10 feet apart which is a state code so you had to go 15 by the way they were four feet apart um, which i was grandfathered in but when a home died then what so that brings me to the zoning letter this was something that on the front end was a challenge because the city of St. Charles has a provision in their code that says you have to pay a permit fee. It was like five, it was like $40 plus $5 per pansa. So it wasn't that big a number. It was bigger than usual, to be honest. But I, I found it. And I said, I called the city. Said, How do I pay? And they said, what are you talking about? Well, the planning folks who typically sign our zoning letters had never heard of this because it had never been enforced. It had been around for decades. It was in the treasurer's office, which was the part of the accounting department. The treasurer's office handled fees and licenses. Well, they had no procedure. So the planning staff was unwilling to sign a zoning letter that specifically said, I'm okay, easy peasy. But the, but the finance department was like, look, this is what the code says. We're supposed to do it. We're not doing it. So I did a lot of legal research on this um, and Determined that it was a mitigated risk to proceed because it was impractical. Frankly, it was infeasible for me to comply with the current code because I couldn't meet the density requirements. And typically, I would need, if they were trying to sting me, I'd get a hearing and kind of a right to appeal. And I would say, look, I predate you guys. You can't just force feed these new restrictions on me. And I'm going to fight this fight and I'm going to win. Now, the city ended up not caring and they didn't fight me, but I also knew there was a park down the street that was like a $40 million park. So I figured if they're going to stick it to me, they got to get to everybody and the $40 million park is going to fight. And I knew my park was super old. I think the oldest in town. So I was even more immune from pain than the other parks. So, and, and I'm giving a real brief analysis here. 
Um, it's been several years, just over two years at this point. But I got I spent a ton of time on this thing. There was on the zoning. There was also a title issue where the guy we were buying from, David, nice guy, but he was getting phone calls like five a day trying to buy this park and probably for people more than us, paying more than us. So we wanted to close. We at one point asked him for extension. We at one point even tried, we didn't retrace strategically because he owned another really nice park. Like the day before closing, we tried to retrace because it was a major, what I thought was a major undisclosed issue. Ended up not being as big an issue um, in the long run. But he bought the park from, you know, Jim and Sally. No big deal, right? Well, the chain of title, you need to review your preliminary title commitment. The chain of title shows that he only got a deed. There's two parcels. One was the park. One was the access road. The access road used to be an easement. When the McMansion neighborhood went inside to the north and the city took the eminent domain road to the west, the access road was basically deeded to him, but only by Jim. Sally never signed. That's a problem. So we pointed out during time, we make a title objection. He said, most title objections say the seller has to cure, or if seller doesn't cure, then buyer can either A, bail, or B, close and waive the objection. Well, we wanted to close, but he didn't want to cure. So he said, tough cookies, your problem. Don't close. I got somebody else lined up to pay even more than you guys. And we're crap, we didn't have time. We had a stiff DD period. We had no more extensions or anything like that. We can't buy property that, you know, Sally didn't, didn't sign on. You got to get a death certificate from the county. But she didn't die in that county. We couldn't find her. She was going to take more time. So we got lucky, so to speak. The title company was very astute at these matters. And the title company said, did David have title insurance when he bought it? I'm like, I don't know. Probably. He's a smart guy. Well, he did. Well, that title insurance insured his chain of title in error. But whoever it was, First National or Fidelity or Chicago, whoever it was, it was a big company. They missed it. So my insurance, my title company said we can insure over that risk. You can close if Sally ever comes back from the grave and causes her errors and causes a chain of title problem. You can sue us, but we can sue them, and then you get your money back, so to speak. So... I proceeded in light of that um, potential title issue on the front end and potential zoning issue in the front end because I had evaluated the risk and did, did a risk reward analysis and it seemed to be favorable. On the back end, you know, we, we implemented the property, right? We, we held it for just under two years. We were up to rent 25 to 30 bucks, another year, 25 to 30 bucks, which is more than I've honestly more than I've really done a lot. I'm not a big rent raiser, just, my dad's pretty nice and gentle and soft. He always convinces me not to, but also I'm pretty reasonable too, um, to a fault, unfortunately, in some instances. But in this case, we raised a little higher, but it was still below market rents. People please supposed to pay. We had high demand. That helped. We waited for the second rent cycle to hit, and then we listed that we were going to refi. The bank wouldn't give us more cash out. So we decided to, the bank said, you got to come back in six months. So we decided to list so I listed this park uh, with Ken Scheffler at Yale and not to just endorse only Canter Yale. Uh, I've used other brokers before and I like other brokers and there are lots of good brokers out there. There's some bad ones, but there are lots of good brokers. 
So brokers are like a are tool in a toolbox, like a lawyer. Some brokers are good for certain regions and parks. Some are good all the time. Some are never good. I thought these guys would be good in this market in part because they sold a park nearby at what I thought was an exceptionally high price. And I thought they were the right group for the job. And I think I was right. They did a really good job and I appreciated them, which is why I'm giving them a shout out. Hey, Ken, um, I should have negotiated it. I would do this when I negotiated that commission split. Um, just kidding. So anyway, we listed the park with them, but I only gave them a four-month listing because I thought if they if they can't sell it in the first 60 days, they're not going to sell it, right? And I don't need to sell, I don't drag it out for six, eight, 10, 12 months. And then if they don't, I got time to dust it off, go back to Fannie Mae and refinance it. I've quote, seasoned the property longer. And then I can do my cash out refi, which was the goal I had to take the cash out. I didn't want to just get a lower rate for 30 years. I wanted to, you know, I had a lot of trapped equity, right? Um, I had a recourse loan and all this stuff. Um, so when you go to non-recourse, because this had a floodplain, because the city had taken some previous property from domain, the homes were old and aging. Um, it was a good market, but the, the the topography of this, the actual land value was going to be hard to reutilize for any other use. A tornado missed this part by mere miles, so that always gives you a little bit of a chill. The St. Louis 100-year flood showed up during my ownership. Um, luckily, it didn't actually do that much damage. Knocked some skirting off four or five homes. So it wasn't a big deal, but it could have been bad. I was um, in escrow when that happens. That could have been scary. But ultimately, went to market. This is where a good contract helps. And the other side was reasonable to work with. No disrespect to the other side or their legal counsel. But I feel like we did a good job on the legal end. Jonathan in my office as a competent lawyer. And very confident. And and I worked on it as the quote client. So we had two, I'm a relatively good lawyer. We had two good lawyers looking at this thing. And we had some good provisions in there. And when we were in escrow, the market changed. Let's be honest. The rates went up, I think, 25 bips and 75 bips and another 75 bips. So they their first bank to bail. The next bank was getting shaky. And another bank was in the middle of this and equity started to get wobbly. And I don't know if this is all true. This is, you know, this is what I hear, you know, secondhand and third hand through broker. And ultimately, I don't want to give them more time. This thing went in escrow in June. It closed on 1228. A long time. How would I keep them on the hook? And they paid a sub 4.5 cap when interest rates were. 100, 150, 200 bips higher than that cap rate on a park that's at this point 100% occupied. You can't, you cannot increase occupancy in this park. You cannot reduce expenses on this park. I mean, I had this thing running lean. They can raise rent, but good grief. We can raise rent 150 bucks on people. That'd be horrible. You can only raise rent so much, the market will bear. And you got infill issues if these people move, if the homes, you know, I band-aided some homes in this park. I had a home that had no interior walls. It had been gutted, but it was in the floodplain and it, there were setback issues and there was conform, legal non-conforming rights issues to refill that space. I didn't want to take that home out. We we put more money into a 75, a 1975 home than you should. 
to keep your occupancy. You do the math, 5.25 million divided by 67 lots. You got to keep the occupancy. So you got to put some money into these park-owned homes, which we had some park-owned homes along the way because we evicted people, took them back, bought them cheap, things like that. So what helped us in the PSA negotiation get this baby over the hump, it was big earnest money for extensions, non-refundable earnest money. And at some point, this is crazy, we got $250,000 of earnest money released from escrow. Buyer wanted more time. We were willing to give them more time, but I wasn't gonna just leave it in escrow and then they and then if something bad happened, I gotta go sue to get my money back. To get my what was at that point, my earnest money. So we said, hey, if you need more time, that's fine. I mean, it, it, hey, I get it. Market change, need more time. You got to pay for more time. And at some point, I'm starting to get nervous. You may not close. It's a lot easier to have 250 in my pocket and you sue me with what? No real claim than for to have 250 in the title company's pocket and me sue them. Because the title company, they're sheep, all title companies. They're going, even if the contract says, you know, says if the earnest if the term if the termination happens, X timeline it goes to this person, and Y timeline goes to this person. The title company's a sheep. If one party says no or I, I object, they just hand it over, give it to the state treasurer. We'll, you know, we're here's the funds, we're out of this deal. And then you got to sue to get it back. And then you end up your negotiations, you spend a bunch of money on lawyers, which nobody likes doing, and then you got to chop their earnest money and it's a big pain in the butt. So I did not want that to happen. I made that mistake once back when I was doing retail. And somebody's fighting over their earnest money. So I had it released and it worked. And I said, look, seller, if you're going to close, it's not a good deal. It's applicable to purchase price. And you know, good for them. They they did it and they stepped up and they closed. So I wasn't always confident they would. So I put provisions in place. Well, then guess what? They bought time. They released 250. Well, then later in life when they needed more time or they needed more extensions, they want to retrade something. I have a quarter million dollar chunk of cash and of leverage and like, no, I'm not going to reduce the price. No, I'm not going to extend for free. I'll extend again for more sunk cost for you. So the nature of the contract with representations, warranties, dates, watching it, and then the negotiation piece of getting non-refundable money and then non-refundable money of a substantive amount. It wasn't 5,000 here. I mean, 250,000 released, it really helped keep this thing on track. Ultimately, I think the buyers, I wish them well, and I think they'll still do well in this property. They they paid more than I would have paid, but they knew that and that they didn't have to work. I'm handing them, I handed them over a gift wrap deal that's very, very easy to operate. Um, so it's a win-win. I hope to do business with them again. Uh, in the end, it was not, um, it was, you know, there's, there's choppy waters during these economic times. And I had a lot of clients that had a lot of deals fall out of escrow. I was very blessed to have this deal stay in escrow. We had 1031 to funds, um, buying some MH, buying some apartment with some of these funds just because, you know, need to place funds in certain amounts of time, diversify on those. Um, Jonathan and I have other episodes on tick drop swap, ticks with syndications, 1031, 
the tent, the syndication roll up. You got to get a good qualified intermediary involved, good title company, good legal team. Your CPA is going to hate you tracking all those bases, tax bases when you modify all these things. You got to modify um, investor splits and distributions. So in this deal, back to the beginning, I knew this deal was going to be a home run because it, it couldn't screw it up. I mean, anybody can figure this deal out, right? 94% occupant, we bought it, great market, you know, reasonable rents, minimal rentals or no rentals, a couple that the guy had financed. So there was some contingent risk there. And I knew it was gonna, wasn't going to miss. So I told the investors, look, I'll pay you an APREF, which is which competitive at the time. It's probably a little high, but I'll pay you an APREF, which was good. And I said, look, I'm going to give you... I want to want, I'm going to give you guys 75 to me, 25 to you. I had a family office telling me, you got it backwards, right? And some investors say, you're, no, no, the GP gets 25. I said, not this GP. I get 75. And you're still going to get an APREF. And here's the deal. You're going to, I'm going to deliver. But once I deliver 15% RR compounded, 15 is a good yield. I'm not going to cut you out of the deal. I'm not going to cap you. After 15, though, I'm going to give you a haircut hard. I'm going to 90%. Maybe we're pissed about that. I said, look, based on my pro forma, you're going to make a 19 to 20% yield, which is pretty good. But here's the deal. What is the risk percentage in this yield? Very low. Stable, great market. It can pay the pref out of the gate. I negotiated a really favorable loan with the local lender. And by the way, I chose to sign a risky, quote, risky recourse loan rather than me doing what a lot of syndicators do, which may be smart. I mean, I'm not going to knock this, but a lot of syndicators be like, oh, yeah, we're really low leverage. Yeah, we're 60% LTV. Like, yeah, you know what that means? They got non-recourse. The deal goes south, they flush the investor's equity. Here, to go south, I'm choking on it. So I said, look, because I'm taking that extra risk, I, and because I'm going to hire LTV, I have less equity in, which I also like doing that because then less equity is diluted, which pushes the, the net IRR. And it makes sense to do that if and only if there are hurdles in your syndication. This one had a hurdle. If and when I hit a 15 IRR, I go to 90% IRR. The net yield to investors on this deal, let me pull it up here. I had it somewhere. was, I think it was 29%, 27.3% with an equity multiple of 1.43 net of my fees. And it's not just me, I'm not the only GP around here, but the LPs put in 850,000. That was the about 150,000 commission, to be honest. And then we had some money for CapEx. We had the 20% down payment, we had some reserved reserves. And 850 of LP. So at closing, we gave the LPs their 850 back. They got on the first hurdle, 7525, they got there was only 221 in that bucket. They got 55,000. In the next bucket, there was a million seven thirty-seven. They got 173. So all told, the LPs got a million eighty. So they put an 850, they got a million eighty. Not bad, 27.3% yield. It was shorter than I anticipated, so I wanted to make sure I took care of them. I didn't want them to get stuck with the taxable hit. 
So I worked like heck. I had a client that did a big apartment deal, raised about 11 million bucks. It was complicated, 1031, tick, syndication, all that jazz. Freddie and Fannie Mae loan assumptions, two loans. And we 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 contributed that million eighty the LPs on their behalf. And uh, I was one of the LPs and uh, as well, putting some cash myself in the deal as they typically do. I think I was actually the second highest um, LP, but we put it into this apartment deal. And it's going to, it should also be a really good deal. I really like it. Did the legal work on it and stuff too, in addition to being an investor. So I'm real familiar with it, but we gave the investors a million eighty, twenty-seven 27.3% yield. Pretty good. And because it was faster, we made sure they got a 1031 so they don't get a tax hit. Not getting tax advice. We hope they don't get a tax hit. But for the GPs, that left 1.729. So of proceeds that were about two point total proceeds were two eight, one point seven change was the GP's GP piece, not kind of GP's LP cash. So we basically got, let me do the math here. We got lifetime here. You can believe me, I say I don't edit these things. We got 61% of the proceeds, but really we got higher than that because if you, they gave them back the rate 50, it was in there. So overall we got 75 and then you go to 15% IRR you get to 90, we're somewhere around 85% of the proceeds. And that, my friends, is not the norm. I would wager that's, that might be a record. And But it was fair to the investors because like, look, guys, go pick another deal that's going to pay you your 8-pref from day 30. We pay our pref right out of the gate, month, 30 days in, which I at the time, years ago, I thought was like, quote, normal. Now I'm an LP in a bunch of deals, MH, storage, apartments. Good grief. Some of these guys don't pay a pref forever. And I'll be interested to see at the end of the movie if they ever catch it up or if they just go under. But it's, it's really kind of frustrating, actually. But point is, give the investors a fair deal, but bet on ourselves on the upside and just said, look, if I overperform anything over 15, that's when I get paid, baby. If I get, if I deliver less than 15, well, then I'm not going to make very much. If I get paid, if I deliver less than eight, well, good grief, I'm going to make zero. I'm doing this for practice. So in the end, um, part of the point here is it's not about how many pads you own. It's about, how well you implement the business plan on this, the, the amount of pads you have, because you could, you could have a thousand pads and make less money than a hundred pads. If you don't do it right. And this was not a heavy lift. This was a very risk adjusted project and it turned out really well for everybody. So no complaints here till next time. Thanks and God bless. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening.
Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.